So we uh, we are going through uh, the Big 12. Um, many of you guys are here, for those of you that are new, um, we are covering big, uh, the Big 12 is uh, 12 prominent characters in the Old Testament. So we're looking at their lives, their examples, and the way that they show us to Christ. So we, we do this because ultimately the Old Testament isn't just a story, but rather it's our family lineage. We've talked about that when we're united to Christ by faith, that there are great, great, great grandparents. And so we get to learn about who we are by learning about who they are and what they've done. Um, but more importantly, we get to see Christ. That Christ came in, in Luke 24 and he's talking to the disciples and he says, you want to understand me? Look in the Old Testament. And he says, if you look in the Old Testament, you will see that I am the one being portrayed. And so we look at these characters because ultimately they show us a type of Christ, the one to come. And so we get to see Jesus and all of his beauty and his different facets by looking, uh, by looking at these characters. Now, our, our point in this is just to give a, a broad overview. Uh, these stories are vast. And so uh, 12, uh, when we cover Moses, it's enormous next week. And so what we're hoping to do here is not uh, give an exhaustive explanation and in-depth study on these characters, but rather we're just wanting to touch on them. We're just wanting to give you a taste so that as you get a taste, you get to maybe have a better image and a better understanding of who they are, their story as a whole, uh, and the Bible in general, uh, but also that that you would get to uh, you get to see your own life through their lenses. So today we are going to uh, we're going to talk about Joseph, and so uh, we're going to follow in like fashion. So we're going to talk about Joseph's story, Joseph's example, and uh, and looking at Christ through Joseph. Now, if you want, you can turn your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm just going to give an overview, um, the spark notes on Joseph's life. And so you can start, it starts in Genesis 37, and it goes all the way to Genesis 50. And so uh, the story of Joseph. Joseph is awake. It's the middle of the night. It's cold. He hears other prisoners screaming out loud. He's thankful in this moment that he has his own prison cell. He's been in prison for years for something that he didn't do. And it's in this moment that he recalls and he remembers how it all came about. How it all started. Joseph was 17. He was always favored by his father, Jacob, because he was the the son of the wife that he loved, Rachel. And so Joseph grew up um, with his other brothers, the young, spoiled cared for, favored son. His father, Jacob, gave him a coat of many colors. And it was special, it was unique. It was given him to show that he was different than the rest of his brothers. The coat came down to his sleeves to show that he, unlike his brothers, wouldn't need to work for a living. That while they were older and would be out in the field, that Joseph would be able to rest and relax at home. Not only this, but Joseph had integrity while his brothers would deceive and, and be deceived, Joseph would give reports about his brothers to his father, further stemming his brother's frustration and hatred of him. To top all of that, Joseph had these strange dreams. They had come on as he was young, and, and he kept having them, and he, he would tell them. He told his brothers about that he saw this grain, and that all these grains would bow down to his stock. And his brother became more frustrated, saying, are, are we the ones working? Are we to bow down to you? He told his father that he had a dream of the stars and the sun and the moon all bowing down to him. And his, his father said, are, are you, your mother and I to bow down to you? But his father kept these things in mind, remembering his own story and how God had worked. It was in this 
animosity in this setting that Joseph was naive. He didn't see the world and how it was working. And one day his father sent him to check on his brothers, for they were near Shechem tending the flock. As Joseph is going to Shechem, his brothers, uh, he, he sees that they're not there, and he goes to Dothan to find them. His brothers see him coming uh, a long ways off, and they begin to conspire. They begin to say, let us kill this dreamer that's come. Let him, let's put an end to his life and the bothersome that he is to us. And so as Joseph comes, they take him. And uh, Simeon instead protects, he protects Joseph, and he says, no, let us not kill the boy, but instead throw him in a pit. And so they throw Joseph in a pit. And Judah comes and says, Judah said, listen, why should we kill our own flesh and blood? Why not sell him? And so they see passing Ishmaelites and Midianites, and they sell Joseph into slavery. The brothers take Joseph's coat of many colors, and they rip it, and they put lamb's blood on it, and they show it to their father Jacob and say, identify this coat. Is this your son's coat? And so they deceive Jacob into thinking that a wild animal had killed Joseph. Joseph, 17, only knowing that a pampered life with his father being favored is now sold as a slave. He goes into Egypt and is sold to Potiphar, who is the the guard, the chief of the guard in Egypt. It's years that, that go by and Joseph shows himself faithful as a servant. He continues to progress up the line. And Potiphar realizes that God is with Joseph. Everything he touches begins to flourish. He realizes his gifting and his ability. And so Potiphar puts Joseph as second command over his entire house. Now, Joseph was not only wise and young, but he was very handsome. And so Potiphar's wife saw Joseph, and she wanted him. She desired him. She came on to him many times, telling him to lay with her. But each time he refused. Each time he turned away from her, denying her. It was a case of fatal attraction. Finally, she cornered him and said she would not let him go, that she demanded that he sleep with her. And Joseph turned and said, how can I do such a sin against God? And he ran, leaving his very coat in her hand as he escaped. Potiphar's wife didn't take kindly to that. And so she reported to her husband that Joseph had come in and had tried to rape her and that he came in to laugh at her and to make fun of her. Potiphar, in anger, sent Joseph and put him in prison. Innocent, Joseph went in for something he never had done, for integrity. He languishes in prison, but even there God is with him and God shows him favor. And the chief of the prison puts Joseph as second in command. And Joseph begins to actually oversee the prison itself, begins to watch over prisoners and take care of them. It's several years into his stay at prison, and the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh are sent in for a crime. Joseph is attending to them, and the cupbearer tells Joseph about his dream. Joseph can tell that they're weighed down, that they're burdened. And so Joseph coaxes him, tell me your dream. What is it that you've seen? And so the cupbearer tells him his dream. And Joseph says, in three days you will be restored. You will once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. The baker, seeing that the cupbearer had a favorable answer, says, I I too have had a dream. The baker tells Joseph of a dream. 
an unfortunately not so favorable of an outcome. Joseph said, in three days, your head will be hanged from you, as Pharaoh will require your life. What Joseph had told them, the interpretation came true. And in three days, the cupbearer was restored and the baker was hanged. And Joseph asked, he said, I ask you but one thing. Remember me when you come to Pharaoh. Tell him of me. Get me out of here. But the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And instead, he languished in prison for years. Finally, a day arrived when Pharaoh had a dream. He sought out his magicians. He sought out his wise men. But none could answer. None could interpret. The cupbearer at this time said to Pharaoh, it's now that I remember my sin. I remember my transgression. And while I was in prison, there was a man who was able to interpret my dream. Maybe he will be able to help Pharaoh. Pharaoh called Joseph into his throne room. And he asked, are you able to interpret the dream? Joseph says, it's not I. There's not in me the wisdom, but God will answer Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells in the dream, he says, I dreamed and there were seven plump, full cows. And then all at once, seven skinny cows came and, and ate the first seven, but yet they did not look any bigger. He said, I dreamed again and there were seven stalks of grain, full and plump. And then there were seven skinny ones, blighted by the wind that came and swallowed up the seven full ones. And yet they looked none the bigger. What does this mean? What is the interpretation? Joseph turned to him and he said, This has happened twice, so the thing is fixed by God. God has told and revealed to Pharaoh what will be. There will be a seven-year period of great prosperity where there will be a, a numerous amount of food, but then there will follow a period of seven years where the famine will be so great that it will make you forget the seven years of prosperity. Joseph said to Pharaoh, This is what you should do. Find a wise and discerning man and appoint him over and take a fifth of the grain of the land and store it up so that when the years of famine hit, there might be enough so that the kingdom would not perish and die away because of the great drought and famine. Pharaoh turns to his advisors and he says, Is there anyone like this man who has the spirit of the living God inside of him? And so they appointed Joseph to be second in command. Pharaoh said, you will watch out and you will guard and guide and instruct my kingdom. And only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And so Joseph appointed. And the seven years of plenty came. And there was so much grain that it could not be counted. Almost as much as the sand on the shore. But then the seven years of famine came. And Joseph began to trade the people of Egypt. And, and nay, almost the whole world began to come to Joseph. Because the famine was so great. And he began to trade with them. First money. And then herds. And then property. He was a wise steward. It was during this time that Joseph saw his brothers once again. They didn't know it was Joseph. Or he had a different garb on. And he talked differently from his years in Egypt. But they came because of the great famine. They asked for grain. But Joseph deceitfully tricked them he began to question them who are you where have you come from and they said we are all sons of one father he says no you are not 
I don't believe your spies. Your spies come out to spy the nakedness of the land. They said, no, we are not. He says, I don't believe you. They told them about another brother that they had. And so Joseph put them in prison for three days, talking and discussing more. Finally, he said, listen, I am a man that believes and trusts God. Prove to me your story and you'll be set free. He said, I will keep one of your brothers while you go and get the younger brother to prove to me that you are not spies, but that you are who you say you are. So the brothers left with grain in hand while Simeon remained in prison with Joseph. As the brothers were going back to their homeland, they opened their packs and they discovered that the money that they had paid for the grain was still there. Fear, anxiety gripped them in this moment. Not only did they have one of the most powerful men at odds with them, but now they look like thieves, stolen something that they had paid for. It was in this moment that they began realizing and thinking about what they had done to Joseph. They began to think to themselves that God is, God is giving us what we had sowed. We were beginning to reap for the crime at which we have sinned against. They got back to their father and told Jacob everything that had happened. He ripped his robe in frustration and in anger. Why did you tell the man anything? Why did he tell him about an art? Another son, why do you tell him about me? The, his sons told him, he pressed us, he asks us. And so they waited. They refused to come for Jacob said, I will not give Benjamin. I will not allow him to go. He is the last son of, my, of Rachel, and so he will stay. And so Jacob relented. He refused to, to allow them to go. A season passed on, and the famine was so great they began to starve. His sons pressed him. We must go. Jacob said, fine, go. But they said, we will not go without Benjamin. For he sternly warned us, if we were to go up without Benjamin, it would not go well with us. Jacob finally assented and he said, fine, I trust God. If I am bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Judah pledged and he said, at my hand, I will protect Benjamin. If something happens to Benjamin, you can take my children. They are the pledge of his safety. And so Judah and the twelve and, and his brothers go up once again to Joseph. As they go to Joseph, they bring double the money and they showed Joseph's servant. They said, when we were going, the money that we paid was in our sacks. And so we brought double. The servant said, God has shown favor upon you. We have what you have paid for. They come in and they brought a present for Joseph and they got it ready. They were to have lunch with him at noon. Joseph arrived and, and seeing Benjamin, he began to, to grow warm. He began to weep and he had to run out because he cried. He was so overjoyed to see his younger brother. As they had lunch together, all the rest of the brothers were eating and Joseph, and ben, Joseph gave Benjamin five times the portion. What a feast. They began to talk and the brothers got the grain that they had looked for and they're on their way home, thinking that their journey had, had been well, thinking that they had gotten the grain that they had come. But they didn't know that Joseph had actually replaced their money in their sacks and put his cup in Benjamin's bag. He sent, Joseph sent his servants after the brothers. They caught up to them and they said, Why have you repaid evil for good? Our master has done great good in giving you grain and you have stolen from him. 
The verse said, we have not stolen. Show us. Whoever has stolen anything will surely die. They searched, and the cup was found in Benjamin's pack. The brothers ripped their cloaks, and they went back to the city. It was at this point that Judah came, and Judah threw himself before Joseph and begged him. His brothers bowed before Joseph, as his dream had said. They told him the story. They said, Jacob has lost his favored son. Benjamin's the only one left. If we were to come home without Benjamin, our father would surely die. It's in this moment that, Benj- that Joseph finally reveals who he is. He tells them that he is Joseph, their brother that they had sold. They, in fear and anxiety, <laughs> say, please don't harm. But he, he comes and he embraces. And he says, what you have intended for evil, God has brought about for good, for the saving of many lives. The 12 brothers who were divided now stand united and reconciled. Pharaoh hears of it, and he tells Joseph to, to go and to send the plenty to get his father and all their young ones to come back and that they would have the best of the land in Egypt. They, they settle in the land of Goshen. Jacob dies after blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They are now portions in Israel. Joseph dies at 110, and he tells them, don't leave me here. Take my bones back to Haran. Take them back to where they belong. This is Joseph's story. So I want to look at first a couple things that we learn from his example. One of the first things that we see in Joseph's life that he shows us an example of is that Joseph shows us how to persevere in the midst of uncertainty and hardship. Man, I don't know if there's a character that has faced more uncertainty and more hardship. Maybe Job. But Joseph is goes from being pampered, from being spoiled, from living on the high life, to now being a slave. Right? He doesn't know, his life is no longer his own. He is no longer free to choose where he wants to go, what he wants to eat, who he wants to be around. But instead, these things are dictated for him. He goes from, from being second in command, even in there, to being thrown in a prison where he doesn't know how long he's going to be there, where he's, if, if he's going to get out. His life is full of hardships. It's full of uncertainty. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure Joseph probably had some moments of frustration, right? He probably had some moments of, of depression, of anxiety, of wondering, what is going on in my life? Why is this happening to me? But the, the picture that we get in Genesis is one of faithfulness. That Joseph perseveres. That Joseph continues to believe and trust. Why? Right? I mean, why not take a victim mentality? If anybody had the, had the right or the ability to take a victim's mentality, it would have been Joseph. He could have easily said, woe is me. Following God hasn't benefited me. It hasn't got me anywhere. I, I'm in, I show integrity and I'm thrown in prison. I tell the dreams that God's given me and I got sold into slavery and betrayed by my brothers. Why keep following God? Why? Why not continue to, why not do my own way? This isn't clearly working. The key for Joseph's perseverance was that God was with him. God was with Joseph. Now, what do we mean that God was with him? God is with all of us. God is around, but it was different. Joseph knew who God was and he knew how God related to him. Joseph would have remembered Father Abraham 
and that God tested Abraham. That he tested him, right, by offering up his only son. But not only that, but that God rewarded Abraham's obedience greatly. That everything that he was tested on was entrusted to him even more fold when he gave it up. He would have remembered that God was testing him. Not only this, but he would have remembered from his father, Jacob, that he was under Laban's oppressive rule for 20 years. But yet God was with him. God was with his father, Jacob, and prospered him in the midst of those things and allowed him to endure. He would have remembered these things and known that God was with him, that God was relating to him and was testing him, that God loved him, that God was not out to destroy him, but instead was using him, was with him in the midst of those things. The key to our perseverance is not having our eyes set on our circumstances, but having our eyes set on how God relates to us in the midst of our circumstances. You see, if we don't think that God loves us, if we don't think that God's testing us, if we don't think that that God is going to put us in places that are going to be too much for us, God put Joseph in a place that was too much for him, that was overwhelming for him, where he couldn't handle it. And God's going to put you in places and in circumstances and situations where you can't handle it. You can't. It's not in you. But that's why he's there. God is with us so that we might learn that our strength is found in him and not in ourselves. We see in James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason that Joseph was able to persevere in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of hardship, was because he knew who his God was. And he knew how God related to him. That God put him in situations where he couldn't, but he could, but God could. He tested him, but also he knew that God loved him. He knew that God was working all things together for good, just as he had done with Abraham, just as he had done with Jacob. The next thing we learn from Joseph's life is that Joseph shows us how to remain pure in the midst of temptation. Right? Joseph is in his early 20s. He's clearly very intelligent and wise. Not only that, but He's apparently attractive and handsome. He's second in command in Potiphar's household, and he has probably a very beautiful woman that's, a, that's coming on to him. Potiphar is a very powerful man, and so he probably chose who he wanted to be his wife. Joseph could have easily had said, you know, nobody needs to know about this. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knew who Joseph was. Nobody knew where he'd come from. Nobody knew his family or his God. It, was very, it would have been very easy for him to deceive and for him to lie. And for him to act out of his selfish desires. But consistently, he denied himself. Why? Right? I mean, there's tons, I think there's tons that we learn from this example. One of them is that um, we need to run away from sexual temptation. Right? The Bible talks about it's like a fire. That when we try to play with it, it will burn everything that it's close to. And so you see, Joseph literally leaves his cloak and, cloak and runs away. Rather than trying to stand and endure the temptation, he runs and he flees from it. But more importantly, I think, is the motivation. What, what was Joseph's motivation for not sleeping with Potiphar's wife? He says, how can I do this against God? What does that mean? It means that Joseph knew 
that this sin was against God. It means that he couldn't separate his sexual life from his relationship with God. He couldn't categorize his life into different avenues, different areas, and say, well, this is my sex life. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to act how I please. And this is my relationship with the Lord, and I'll do these things in this. They weren't categorized, but instead he saw that his relationship with God directly dictated and influenced and flowed over into his sexual life. And it made him say, this is not honoring to God, and therefore I will not do it. And it cost him his freedom. It cost him his freedom at that. But he would not bend. Why? I think one of the biggest reasons isn't because Joseph was this amazingly self-controlled individual. I think one of the big reasons why is because he knew that God was with him. Right? The Bible talks about this word. It's, it's called divine imminence. Right? It's a big $5 theological word. And basically what it means is that God is always with us is that there's no place that we can escape from God's presence. That God's presence is real. In uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 24, it says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 11 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. What he's saying is that there's no place that we can go that escapes from God's presence. And what this means, this means God's always, always with us. Joseph knew that God was holy and that God was with him. The thing that keeps us from realizing this is sin. His, we see it in, in Jacob's story, right? Jacob goes to, to Bethel and he sees God, but it says, says before he did that, he says, God was in this place and I knew it not. And isn't that, that's the exact reason, is when Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell, the understanding and the realization of God's presence with us continually was broken. And so what needs to be restored to us isn't a greater self-control, it's realizing that God's presence is with us. I was listening to a, a pastor, uh, J.D. Greer, and he was talking uh, and shared with some young men that uh, that he knew how you could uh, you could turn off the the sexual urge like that like a light switch. He was like, you can stop it. He's like, you can stop it. And they all looked at him, you know. And I, I looked at him very, uh, you know, like dubious. Like I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's necessarily how it works. I don't think you can just like turn it on and off. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, I, I really think you can. He says, so imagine this, like you, you know, like guys, you uh, you're alone with a, a a really beautiful girl, you love her, and you're and you guys are really going at it. And all of a sudden, her uh, her green beret special ops dad walks in the room. That changes things a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> That the whole mood is very different now. And instead of one of, of, of great attraction, there's one of great anxiety and fear. And he goes, your, your, your relationship with her looks differently in that moment. Why? What changes it? Well, you realize who her father is, what he can do. And it's not just who he is and what he can do, but it's the fact that his presence is with you that changes everything. He says, this is the realization that we deeply need. 
This is what sin has done, is it has broken our realization that God is with us. Wherever we go, that his presence is there, that God is holy. And it's a struggle for all of us to realize and to see that God is with us. How do we, how do we fight for God's presence? How do we seekers and lovers of his presence? And it's just daily. It's just daily confessing of our sin, repenting, humbling ourselves, crying out. God knows, God hears, God is with us. As we realize God's presence more and more, he will be the one to guard us. He will be the one to guide us. Knowing that he is full of grace and truth. One of the negative things that we learn from Joseph's example is that Joseph shows us how not to relate, um, at least emotionally, to those that have wronged us. Now, Joseph is kind of a mixed bag here. There are ways in which Joseph definitely shows us how to relate because in the end, Joseph forgives his brothers, right? I mean, his brothers betrayed him. They sold him. I mean, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big deal. And can you imagine that being scarred on you? You're in prison and you're thinking about that. You're in slavery, you're a servant, and you're thinking about that. But when they come, Joseph still has a little bit of bitterness. It still seems like he has a little bit of deceit. And he, he tests them, right, to see their motives. Rather than, rather than when his brothers come, rather than him disclosing and saying, I'm your brother Joseph, you have wronged me, but God is right in me, Joseph instead doesn't tell them who he is. And he kind of tests them, and he sends them away with money. You know, they come back. And he, he holds one of them, he holds Simeon in jail for a while. And so it seems like there's still some kind of, you know, some processing that, that happens. And man, isn't that the reality for all of us? When we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when somebody has done something to us and it is it scars us deep, how do we process through that? How do we forgive them? And that's where Jesus comes in and he talks and he says, on the Sermon on the Mount, it says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How do you do that? How do you love those that persecute you? Pray for those that, that seek your harm. And the only way is that, not that you don't feel anything. right? Jesus isn't saying that all of a sudden your feelings go away. But what he's saying is that your feelings now are sifted through something else. They're sifted through truth. They're sifted through the reality of what God has done for you. Right? The only way that we're able to truly forgive others is when we realize what it means that God has forgiven us. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the only way that we're able to truly forgive others, that we're able to sift through our emotions, is by remembering the truth of what God has done for us and choosing to forgive Choosing to do acts of love. C.S. Lewis, um, in his, uh, his chapter, Mere Christian, talking about love, he says, Don't bother asking if you feel it. 
says, ask if I knew that I love this person or if I knew that I love God beyond a shadow of a doubt, what would I do? All of us, all of us can sit and to think rationally, truly. What would I do? What will my life look like? He says, go and do it. Go and do it. Your feelings will follow instead of trying to dictate and wait for your feelings to act. He says, then you're a slave. But when you are, you are fully free when you know the truth and you walk in it and you sift your emotions through it. That is how we are able to forgive. So how, how does Joseph's story teach us about Christ? What do, we, what do we learn? What do we see about Jesus? There's tons of parallels with Joseph and Jesus. I read one that had 60 parallels, 60 ways. We're not going to share them all. Don't worry. Um, but I want to I point out one that I think is, uh, is a highlight. We see that Jesus is the true beloved son who suffers so that God's people might be saved. Right? Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. He's privileged. He comes from wealth, from status. And he goes into poverty, right? He goes and is enslaved. He goes and he suffers. Why? Why is it that Joseph suffers all of these things? Why is it that he goes from wealth to poverty to wealth again, right? What, what is that? He did all of that so that others might be saved. God put him in that position. He was in that and his suffering was so that many lives might be saved. And don't we see the exact same thing with Christ? Is that Christ came and he came from his father's. Jesus was the father's favorite. Jesus was the only beloved, the only begotten one from the father, full of grace and truth. And he comes down, emptying himself of wealth, putting on the cloaks of poverty. He suffers. He takes our curse upon him. He bears the sin of the world on the cross. And he dies. Why? So that we might be saved. He suffered in our stand. Isaiah um, 53, 4-5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And one of the good news now is, is that Jesus, the beloved of the Father, the favorite of the Father, when we accept Christ through faith, God sees us as he sees Christ. When Jesus was baptized, he came up with the water, um, and uh, and the Spirit descended, and God the Father said, this is my only Son in whom I love. You know, like, and, and when we're in Christ, God says that of us. We are his sons, we are his daughters, in whom he delights, in whom he loves. It sets us free. It means also that we might suffer, that others might be saved. There, there's going to become times in your life where God's going to call you to really difficult things. He's going to call you to give up something. He's going to call you to give up time, resources, relationships, jobs. He's going to call you to things that are going to seem like death. Why? Joseph didn't see this. Do you, do you think that Joseph all along, Joseph had promises and he had hope, but Joseph didn't know exactly how things were going to work out. Joseph was in the middle of uncertainty. But yet he suffered all of that, and the hope was that God would use it. And so too, your life's not going to make sense. Our lives are not going to make sense in the middle of them. It's not like we're going to see how everything works out and everything's coming. But we hope and we pray and we know that ultimately God can use our suffering for the salvation of others. That God can use it so that many lives will be saved. That's why we suffer. That's why we endure. 
is with that hope. The, the last thing I think that we learn from Joseph's story, which is many sermons, is that the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is where we see God's sovereign goodness and man's intentional choice of evil come together. Right? It's where we see God's sovereign goodness and man's intentional choice of evil come together. Genesis fifty twenty. it says uh, this, it says, Joseph's talking, he says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's he saying here? Joseph is saying, who's responsible for his betrayal? His brothers, right? I mean, his brothers, his brothers sold him out. His brothers betrayed him. His brothers planned to conspire to kill him, right? They're responsible he says, you intended this for evil. You did these actions premeditated on purpose with a, with a desired end. He says, but God, God has done the exact same thing, right? So who, who caused Joseph to be sold into slavery? Jo- his brothers? Yes. God? Yes. Both. Joseph is saying right now, there are two causes to one event, while they are culpable, they make choices, they, they aren't robots. They are making willing choices and are held accountable for those things. But God's plan is being accomplished in and through their choices. And this is exactly, man, this is, this is huge in the Bible. This is all over the place, this idea of dual causation. That God is, is planning and purposing and predestining and electing all of these things to happen. But yet people are making true, willing, moral choices. Because what happens is we want to we want to compartmentalize and say, these are my things that I do, and here are the things that God does. And if I do my things, then God does his things. And what we the Bible doesn't teach that. Right? I mean, there's tons of examples, but let me just give you a couple. Right? Philippians, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who is sanctifying you? Right? Are are you just called to sit back and just do nothing? And just wait for Jesus to change you? Well, no. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But wait, hold on. Am I doing everything? Am I the one that's called to, to, to fix myself, to change me? Well, no. It says, no, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what it means is God is at work in and through all of our actions, causing our desires, moving within us. We see the same thing with Jesus, right? The cross of Christ. He says in Acts 2, 22-23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who's responsible for Jesus' death on the cross? On one hand, he says, you, he's talking to the Jews, you're responsible. You killed him. The, the hands of lawless men were the way it was, way that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate because of Caiaphas, because of the, the Jews. But he says, this went according to the definite plan of God. God was in this working through it to bring about his purpose. Man, and this is such good news for us. Because what happens oftentimes is that we make a mistake in our life. We get so caught up in it that it paralyzes us. It freezes us. 
And what this teaches, it teaches that God's sovereign plan is going to be accomplished. That we can't thwart God. But instead, what he plans, what he purposes, he will bring about. We get a partner with him. We to come alongside him and join him in this work. And it's good news too, because if God's in and behind everything, then it means that he's able to work all things together for good. Right? We say that all the time. For God is able to work all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We saw that, that God's intent behind Joseph was good and he was working it all together for good. Do you have that rest in your life? God's sovereignty brings a great rest. It brings a great freedom. Are you able to rest in that, in your mistakes, in your failures, knowing that God is good and that God will bring about his purposes, that he loves you, I think Joseph's story teaches that, and I hope that as we go, for me, that's that's the application for, for Joseph's story, is to rest in God's sovereignty, to rest in his plan for my life, to rest in his plan for our lives, to not be bound up in anxiety and worry and frustration and guilt and condemnation, but instead to know that, that he loves us deeply and that he has good in store, and he's working all things together to that end. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you suffered, that we might be saved. We're thankful that you are the one that ultimately demonstrates purity and that you denied yourself at the cost of your life, not just imprisonment. I pray that uh, if there are those that don't know you here, God, that they would surrender, they would, they would give their life to you, that they might find that they lose nothing. God, I pray for us. Um, you know what we need you know what we struggle with. Uh, and so uh, I pray that uh, we would sense your presence more, that it would be near us, that we would know that you are with us everywhere we go and that that would cause a holy reverence, a holy respect and love for you and, and for how we interact with others. We praise you, God. We invite you into our lives this day. God, help us to go this afternoon, this week, um, and not, not be distracted but instead consciously open ourselves to invite you in, to lead us, to guide us, to speak. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.